So if you had opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, I don't know where I'm at, Mark chapter 9. You know, guys, there is a, a benefit of going through a book, the books of the Bible. You know, the Bible is not one book. It's one, you know, it's 66 books. And, um, and as you kind of go through, and of course, we're not those who believe, I'm not one of those who believe that we need to disengage from the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament will make little sense if we don't understand the Old Testament and uh, the, you know, and vice versa. And so we, we really need to be people of the word. We need to be reading the word, studying the word on our, on our own and filling our hearts and our minds with the truth of God's word. To remind you of where we were last week, remember that Jesus, he had spoken to his disciples so there were the 12, Judas was still among them, of course, and he spoke to them about his suffering, about his suffering and his death and then his resurrection. And we'll look at that a little bit closer in just a moment here. And then Jesus went back to the crowd. So he was with the multitude of people when Jesus said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and the things that followed that. So just so you understand the setting here, Jesus was not just with the 12 when he spoke the things that we're seeing in verse 9. I think he was still with the multitude. So chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And he, the he there is Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power or having come. So I want you to think of this for a moment. I want, I want you to, if you can, with your imagination, put yourself in Peter's sandals for a moment. Remember that Peter was the first one to pipe up to answer the question that wasn't asked just of Peter. It was asked of, of all of the apostles. And the question that Jesus asked but who do you say I am? Remember that? And then Peter piped up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Which prompted Jesus to say, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did, has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I could almost imagine, you know, Peter, you know, just a smile breaking out on his face. I mean, this is, this is good. I mean, you get, you get a compliment from your rabbi, from Jesus, from the Lord. And, and I don't know. I, I mean, there was a lot of rivalry among the 12. But, but maybe there were some that even, you know, slapped Peter on the back and said, Good going, Peter. Boy, you answered that one right. And then, of course, we know that Jesus went on to speak of his suffering. And as Jesus began to speak of his mission, you know, why did you come, Jesus? Well, to suffer and to die, and then to be resurrected on the third day. Then Peter takes him aside, we saw this last week, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And of course, that prompted Jesus to rebuke Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
So you can imagine, I mean, as I read the account, I picture Peter emotionally, you know, uh, maybe just soaring when the Lord praises him and says, you know, Peter, this didn't come from your own noggin, didn't come from your own knowledge. This came from my Father in heaven, that he probably felt kind of proud, you know. And then to have this rebuke, and the rebuke, I mean, the Lord uses Satan as the example, as if Satan was standing right there, but he's speaking to Peter. And he says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I wonder what Peter was feeling. Maybe you could identify somewhat. I mean, we don't know for sure what he was feeling. But have you ever blown it as a Christian? Have you ever messed up? Have you ever said something or done something? And you're, you're almost surprised by your own actions, by the words that come out of your own mouth. And you're disappointed in yourself. I don't know how Peter was feeling, but I'm sure he wasn't feeling really good after being rebuked by the Lord. And I almost wonder if he even heard the things that Jesus said in verses 34 through 38 of chapter 8. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I wonder if he even heard that. You know, you're, you're, you're so troubled, I can't believe I, I said what I said. I, 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 I'm missing something here. I thought I was doing a good thing. I was saying, Jesus, no, these things, these horrible things aren't going to happen to you. I didn't mean any harm by saying that, but I'm corrected by that. I'm, 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 something's wrong. I'm missing the program. I'm missing what, 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 what is going on here. And then Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, we just read it, that there are some, some, He emphasizes some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, as I read the scripture, I wonder to myself, if I was Peter and I just messed up and you're feeling really low and you hear these words of Jesus, if I was Peter, would I think for a moment, would I even consider for a moment that I might be among the some? I don't think I would. I would think maybe some of the others, maybe some even outside of our group of of 12, but I I can't imagine that I would be included in this privilege of seeing the kingdom of God present before my death. And I share this because, you know, guys, I think that many times we, we kind of put ourselves on the shelf as far as service, as far as ministry, because we've messed up so badly that there's no way that God could ever use me ever again. And we just kind of do it to ourselves. And I'll tell you, when we get there, there's one who applauds, and it's not the Lord. It's the enemy. Because if he could get every one of us, Christians, those who have placed our faith in Christ, if he could get every one of us to feel that way, no one would be serving Jesus. 
Listen, if Peter would have remained in that low point, if Peter would have walked away that day and said, you know, Jesus, thank you for the offer. Thank you for calling me to be fishers of men. But I obviously I can't do it. I, it's not in me. I, I just, I, this is beyond me. I can't do this. And if he would have walked away that day, we wouldn't be reading about Peter today. Guys, listen. Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, he wrote this. You guys know it. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then he gives an exhortation. He says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You say, okay, well, why would you read that? Because you know what, guys? You mess up. If you stop there, there's no sowing going on. If you mess up, stop messing up. Listen, we have the power of the Spirit of God. This is mind-blowing, and we don't believe it. Most of us don't even believe it. It's the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. This is what Paul tells us. The same power, the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead is in us as Christians. And we can look at our lives and say, well, I just, I don't see evidence of that. I don't see the power of the Spirit of God in my life. And I wonder if it's because we're not sowing the right seeds, if we're not, we're not really uh, doing our part, you know, to grow in the knowledge of our, our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord and everything else. We're not doing our part. We're kind of sitting back almost with this attitude, if God wants to use me, I guess he'll use me. Could you think of that in other, any other area of life? Now, you, you know, you guys, you have jobs. Could you imagine... If you just sat at home and said, you know, yeah, I got a job today. Oh, great, you know. If they want me to show up, they're going to have to send someone here to pick me up. If they want me to be, do a good job, they, they better provide, you know. And it, no one would think that way in any other area of life, you know. I'm in the Navy. Yes, and if they want me to serve this great nation, then they'll just have to it's like, you're no longer in the Navy. <laughs> you no longer have a job. Come on. We want someone that's going to put effort into it. And the Lord, he saves us to a purpose. I mean, he saves us so that he could use us. He saves us so that we might be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. He saved us. And he wants to use us to be light and to be salt and to be examples and to be a beacon of hope for other people who are perishing. Well, Jesus made this statement, and I doubt that Peter thought that he would be among them, but he was. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them on a high mountain. Most likely the mountain was Mount Hermon. We don't know that for sure, but there's not a lot of high mountains in Israel, and Hermon would be the high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So Jesus, he takes Peter, he takes James and John. James and John, you know, are brothers, and Peter's brother is not included in this, Andrew's not included in this, but it's Peter, James, and John. Now, if you're a student of the scripture, student of the New Testament, you know that 
um, there were a number of occasions, in fact, three occasions, where Jesus singled out these three men, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. The raising of Jairus's, excuse me, Jairus's daughter. Remember, she had died, and so Jesus took these three, and they were there to witness the resurrection of this girl. And then, of course, there was uh, um, the transfiguration. That's what we're looking at here. So that would be the second time. And then the third time is when Jesus was in the garden praying on the night that he was portrayed. Remember, he went further than all the rest, about a stone's throw distance. And then at one point, he called those three to get a little bit closer to where Jesus was. And you've got to wonder why. Now, if we're cynical, we could say it's because these three were always getting into trouble. And so Jesus wanted them close by because you never knew what Peter might say or what James and John might do. You might say, why are you picking on James and John? Guys, can I remind you that it was Jesus who gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder, James and John? I mean, that's not, you know, I look at, we have in our family, you know, we have 14 grandchildren. We have number 15 coming or more, we keep, <laughs> some of the kids keep saying, you can have twins, Aunt Tasha. But anyway, um, but we have all of these babies and, and the girls are starting to catch up, but we still gotta, girls have to do their part. We've got all these little boys and they're all kind of around the same age. And I look at these boys and they are, all of them, they're so rambunctious, you know. Uh, the Renner boys will come over, Elijah and David, you know. And I look at them, sons of thunder, <laughs> you know. Uh, there's a tenderness, but, but they're boys. And when you get them all together, sometimes, you know, you, you hear the racket in the back room and you're thinking, they're tearing the sheetrock off the walls, you know. It is so loud. And they're just rambunctious little boys. But there was a reason why Jesus gave James and John, the nickname, Sons of Thunder. Remember, it was those two that wanted to call fire down and to consume a Samaritan village. <laughs> because, anyway, and Peter, we don't even have to consider Peter. We, we know that Peter had this problem, and the problem was he would take his foot and he would put it in his mouth on a regular basis. But here they are. I think of Peter. Peter, of course, was crucified and Jesus told him that he would be crucified. Remember that? Jesus didn't tell the others how they would die, but he told Peter how he would die. He told Peter that he would be taken. When he was young, he went as he pleased, but when he was old, he would be taken. They would bind him. They would take him. And we know that he was crucified, and tradition tells us that he, he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified, put to death in the same way that his Lord was put to death, and so they crucified him upside down. That's what tradition tells us. And then James, the brother of John, well, we know that he was the first from the 12 to be martyred. James, he was killed by a sword uh, by Herod. And then John, well, John, John the Beloved, John who wrote, um, you know, uh, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. We have three of them. And then, of course, he gave us a recording, he saw, he witnessed, he heard, and he wrote down the things concerning the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so tradition tells us that they tried to boil John alive, 
and it didn't work. I'm not quite sure. You know, I almost wonder, wh what did he look like after, I mean, did, was, this, was he like all burnt skin and stuff? We have no idea. But then eventually they banished him to uh, Patmos, where he saw and he witnessed these things. Why these three? I have no idea. But they were there. And it simply says that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, the word transfigured speaks of a change, but it's not just a change. It's a change from the inside out. So what was happening, we know from the scriptures, is that Jesus, his glory, his, his identity um, as the king of glory was revealed in his incarnation. If Jesus was standing here, this is why, you know, I always objected to, uh, you know, religion. They always have these different things. You can't find it in the scripture, but, you know, in, in religions, different religions, you know, you'd say, well, where's Jesus? Oh, he's the one over there with the halo over his head. What's wrong with you? Can't you figure that out? And of course, there was no halo over Jesus' head. He looked like a little boy when he was a little boy, and he looked like a man when he was a man. In fact, Isaiah tells us that there was no comeliness in him. There was nothing in him, in his appearance, physical appearance, that would cause us to look at him and say, wow, he's impressive. I want to hear what he has to say. It wasn't that at all. Jesus, in his incarnation, he looked like a man, he spoke like a man. Of course, he did much more than a man could ever do because he was God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. That's what the scripture says. He is Emmanuel, which is just that God in the flesh. But for that brief moment, and I say that not knowing how long uh, th this whole thing was taking place, because we're told from one of the other gospel writers that they fell in, these three men, they fell into a deep sleep. And when they came out of the sleep, then they saw, well, we haven't read it yet, but you know where it's going, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus talking. So the prophet, Elijah, Moses, Jesus, there, they could have been there for a long, long time. I, I would suggest to you that this was an this was a um, eternal thing that was happening. And so in eternity, there is no time. It's just now. And so they could have been together for a long, long period of time while these guys were napping. But Jesus, he takes them up. He's transfigured. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on the earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So you have Elijah, Elijah no doubt representing the prophets, and Moses no doubt representing the law. You say, well, how do you know that? You make that statement. How do you, how do you know that? Well, I'm just going by what, what Jesus said. Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Guys, this is why we need to be students of the word. So when you're reading the law, do you know what the law is? Listen, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's the first five books of the Bible. The law, the first five books of the Bible. You're reading through the law. You see 
in the very beginning, Jesus present at creation. You see, Jesus mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 as, uh, uh, you know, the, the curse, the judgment comes down on Adam for his sin. Uh, as, as you move through Genesis, as you're moving through the law, I mean, you see example after example after example. You see Jesus in Isaac carrying the wood, your only son, your only beloved son, carrying the wood of the offering, not knowing that he was the offering, uh, up the mount. What mountain? Mount Moriah, the same mountain where Jesus was crucified. He carries the wood up the mountain and, you know, Father, here's the wood and there's, you know, the fire, you know, we have everything except the offering. Where's the offering? God will provide himself. Guys, the words are important. God will provide himself. Not just simply God will provide, which he did on that day, and there was a ram caught in the thicket, but God will eventually, because this is a foreshadow of what's coming, God will provide himself, literally. You look at the children of Israel in the wilderness, and all they're doing is complaining, complaining, complaining. We want water, we want water, we want water. And Jesus is seen in the rock. You say, where do you get that? The New Testament. Jesus is the rock that followed them, according to uh, Paul in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, or 2 Corinthians 10. Um, Jesus is seen in the serpent, the brass serpent, on the staff. The vipers are biting the people because they're complaining and murmuring, and, and the Lord says, uh, you know, put this together and hold it up, and if they just simply look at it, they will be saved. Jesus is that serpent. You say, what a strange image. And how do we know that to be true? Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you see what I'm saying? You go through it over and over and over and over and over again. You go through the prophets, and we see mention of Jesus from Jeremiah the prophet. And Isaiah, of course, Isaiah, all of us are familiar with Isaiah's prophecies concerning Jesus. But we see mention of Jesus. We see shadows of Jesus in Hosea and Joel and, and even in Jonah and, and some of these you know, prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in that he's the only one that could keep the law the way it was meant to be kept. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in that every, every offering that was prescribed to the children of Israel was a foreshadow of him and what he would accomplish at his death upon the cross. I mean, we just see this example over and over again, and I think it's worth noting that as this was taking place, though Elijah was there, who was taken up in a fiery uh, uh, chariot, remember that? Never experienced death. And Moses was there. Um, they're talking to Jesus. And you got to wonder, what were they talking about? And we don't have to wonder too long, because Luke tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about his death. So they came, and they're talking about his death. They're talking about, no doubt, what his death would accomplish. They're talking to Jesus about his death. Luke chapter 9. I'm sorry, not Luke 9. But anyway, you'll see it there in Luke. You could look at your, <laughs> your own. Um, and they're speaking 
to, to Jesus about his death and what it would accomplish. And there they wake up and they see this and they're witnessing this and they see Jesus and he's shining. Now he's shining. There's no halo when he's just walking the streets of Capernaum. But now there's a glow. Now there's a brightness. And it goes on, it says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then verse 6, we have a commentary, and the commentary is this, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So Peter, he didn't know what to say, so he said, um, hey, uh, we can make some shelters for you. <laughs> I mean, why, why end this thing? This is, it's wonderful. It's just the three of us, you know. John and I have issues. We're going to eventually work these things out. But, you know, it's just the three of us, and it's the three of you. And, I mean, you talk about a Bible conference. This is the best that we can. And, and as he's talking, yapping, and it says that he said this because he did not know what to say, but Luke tells us that he said this not knowing what he said. So he's just speaking words now, you know, he's, because he's nervous. You ever, can you identify with that? You're just trying to find something to say because you're nervous. And as this is going on, at this moment in time, oh, by the way, I got, I got to point something out that I think is really worth noting. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is long-suffering. God is just. God does what he says he's going to do. You better believe that. You better believe that. On Wednesday night, we watched a documentary, a short little documentary on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was excellent, in my opinion. It was excellent, though there wasn't much said in it. There were verses, there were scriptures that were read. But they were on location of Sodom. They're walking around Sodom. And they're just looking at the ruins of Sodom. And as they're walking around, they're picking up the sulfur and they're just lighting it with, with matches or lighters. And the stuff gets so hot, it just melts. And as you're watching this, and they're just kind of walking around, to me, it was very sobering. Now, I've always believed what the Bible says about Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't believe that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they weren't kind to strangers. <laughs> the, the Genesis account is very clear of why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and Ezekiel amplifies uh, the reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is, is that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God said he was going to do it. God did it. Jesus, when he's on the earth, after, of course, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, after the destruction of the earth in Noah's day, Jesus says, listen, what's coming will be like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants people to use their minds and say, he said it then, he did it. He said it then, Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it. He said it, he's going to do it. See, and if you start making the book of Revelation or Bible prophecy an allegory, because that's what you could live with and that's what you could sleep with that night, you're cheating yourself from 
I believe, the byproduct of taking these things seriously, and that is the fear of God. If there is a genuine reverence, a fear of God, that one day there is a day of reckoning, one day there is a day of judgment, one day every man, woman, and child, you know, is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we lived our life. And really, it's going to boil down to, according to the book of Revelation, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Other books will be open because God is fair. And there'll probably be books of, of good works, you know, well, I did this and I did that and I helped a person that, you know, had a flat tire one time and I'm a good guy and I'm a good gal and, and Jesus, you know, will be there with the books open. He'll say, yes, I see that. I've got the date right here. Okay, that's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. One problem, bring out the book of life. You say, I don't like that. It's too narrow. Listen, I'm not the one who says it's narrow. Jesus told us that it's narrow. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. And it's sad that there are people who profess to be Christians and say, I don't know if I believe that. If you've got a good heart, God will accept you. They're lying to you. And if Jesus was present when they were saying that, Jesus would say to them, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Don't listen to them. They're lying to you. And there are people that want to take the sting of God's judgment away. Well, you say, well, you started to say that God was gracious and kind. He is. Moses, God's man, God's man that was to step in and to be a representation of God himself. Think of that. Moses, when you speak, it's like I'm speaking. Moses, I can't speak. I can't do that, you know. All right, all right. When your brother speaks, <laughs> but, but you're the man in charge. You're the guy, you know. Your brother will be the mouthpiece, but, but you know, you're the guy. You need to stand in that place. Remember what happened? Moses, you know, 40 years of his life, he's raised in the courts of Pharaoh. You know, he was probably an extremely powerful man, 40 years old. And then 40 years, he lives on the backside of, of a mountain because he killed an Egyptian, thinking, you know, well, Lord, you called me to be a deliverer, and I'm going to do it. One Egyptian at a time. I'll just kill them until they're all gone. And it's like, nope, wrong. You got that one wrong. And then he comes back, and now the mission begins. I want you to take my, my people and lead them out. And he leads them out. And it's interesting when you read the law, how it seems, and we need to be careful, guys, when you, when you begin to put God in a place of man, uh, we need to be very, very careful because we're not reading the scriptures clearly. But the Lord is, he's revealing something to Moses. Moses, paraphrase, I regret bringing them out. They're a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Moses, how about I just wipe them all out? And I'll just start over with you. No, Lord. No, Lord. They're your people. What was God doing? He's teaching this man who is to be a representation of himself to be an interceder. Intercessor, excuse me. An intercessor. 
Moses, I want you to love the people because they're going to drive you nuts. And I want you to love them, and I want you to care for them, and I want you to be an example to them, and I want to, you to lead them out of the land of bondage. Do you know, guys, I don't know if you're aware of this, but from Egypt to the promised land was about short of three weeks, about two and a half weeks. You say, well, what were they doing all those years? Because they refused to go in. They didn't believe God. And so, you know, for another 40 years, Moses is there with this complaining group of people. And I'm sure there are many times he probably woke up in the morning and said, oh, Lord, maybe we should have done what you wanted to do in the beginning, you know. But, but here they are. And then you get to the rock. Second time. Moses, speak to the rock and water will come forth. Bam! Bam! Water came forth. You can't go into the promised land. You've brought them to the borders of the promised land. I mean, it's, it's, it's time to enter in, but you cannot enter in. He doesn't argue with the Lord. Again, as Christians, because we're, we're flaky when it comes to the, what's the big deal, God? Come on. What's the big deal? Because the rock represented Christ, and he's not to be crucified over and over again. He died once for the sins of the world. You see what I'm saying? We have picture after picture after picture in the scriptures because everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. It doesn't matter where we're at in the Bible. We should be pointing to Jesus because the scriptures point to Jesus. But God is gracious because here's Moses. Here's Moses with Elijah and Jesus who is God in the flesh speaking to Jesus about his death in the promised land. He's there. You made it. Moses, you made it. You're there. You know, guys, the Lord we serve, he's so, he's so wonderful. It says in verse 7, and a cloud came over came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son hear him three times there was an audible voice at Jesus baptism at the transfiguration and then also after Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem according to John there was an audible voice and suddenly uh, they had looked around or when they had looked around they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So there it is again. They're hearing this again. But you'll note the response. So they kept the word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. <laughs> still don't know what that means. They're not clear on that one still. And they weren't clear until it happened. Do you know that Peter later wrote about this in 2 Peter? He wrote about seeing the Lord and the transfiguration and the things that took place 
in his second epistle. And John, of course, he wrote about this, maybe not specifically, but he said that which we have seen and that which we have heard and that which we have handled and, and all. They talked about this after, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then things became clear. I want you to note, and I need to watch my time here, but who was the preeminent one there on the mountain? It wasn't Elijah. It's not the prophets. You want to find God? You want to get close to God? Don't go to the prophets. Go to the prophets because they point to Jesus, but don't go to the prophets aside from Jesus. The law. There are many who profess to be Christians. We have this, what is this thing? It's called Hebrew roots. Hebrew roots. This is kind of a big thing because, you know, Christians, they, they want to identify with something because they don't realize how precious our position is as the bride of Christ. And so they want to be something else. And many, even within this Hebrew roots, this movement that's going on, they don't even believe in the, in, you know, they don't believe that they should adhere to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Guys, I'm telling you, any group that begins to dismantle the word of God, run from them. Run from them. Because they're heretics. And we have this, this thing, you know, you really want to be right with God? Keep the Sabbath. And then you have other Christians that are so silly, and it's so silly when they say things like this, and they say, we do keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Sunday. No, no, no. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath will never be Sunday. It makes the Jews that we're supposed to be a light to look at us and laugh. Sabbath is not Sunday. See, we want to reinvent everything to fit into the Christian mold rather than looking at things through the biblical mold. Sabbath. Every Jew would know. Every Bible student would know Sabbath. Sunset Friday ends sunset Saturday. Sabbath. Go to Israel. Go to Israel, and during the Sabbath, you'll find that the Jewish quarters shut down. And then when they open up, boy, that's the time to go out, go to the coffee shops and everything. Everyone's excited because they've been locked in. You know, they've been laying low for, you know, a, a full day, and, and they're out, and they're just enjoying Sabbath. Go there and try to tell them that no, Sabbath is Sunday. No, it's not. You know, you say, well, what about Sabbath? You brought Sabbath up. Aren't we supposed to keep the Sabbath? We do keep the Sabbath in Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is our Sabbath. Again, this is why we need to look at the scriptures, guys. We need to know the scriptures. It's not through the prophets. It's not through the law. It's through Jesus. God the Father says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And, of course, we look at this from the vantage point of, you know, all of these things have transpired. The crucifixion is done. The resurrection is done. The ascension to heaven has happened. We're now waiting for Jesus to come back for his church. But, we look at these things and we have clarity, or at least we should have clarity. But we should still look at the scriptures and say, oh, Lord, I want to be a man, I want to be a woman who takes seriously your word and what you say and what you promise. Now, they go on, look at verse 10. It says, so they kept this 
word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restoring all things. And then he asked another question because he wants them to understand. Now listen, it's off topic. This is off topic, his, his next question. It's off topic, but it's on topic because he wants them to understand something. He says, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And then he goes back to the first question. But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did not know or they did to him, excuse me, whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but the other gospel writers tell us that they knew he was speaking of John the Baptist. So hang on, we're almost done here. Elijah must come. Listen, Bible prophecy is spoken, it will be fulfilled. The Jews, religious Jews, they're expecting Elijah to come. Because when Elijah comes for the Jew who rejected Jesus, the Christ, they believe that Messiah will come because Elijah must come first. Where do we get this? On Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, this Old Testament book, it ends with the prophecy concerning Elijah. Elijah will come and his ministry will be, my wife was saying to me, Tracy was saying to me but after the first service, she says, isn't this wonderful, Danny, that during the tribulation period, when Elijah comes upon the scene, his ministry is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the father. That this, this work of renewal, this work of coming back to that place where you know, you're, you're, you're going to place your faith in the, in the God of your fathers and so on. But Elijah will come. Before the second coming. How do we know that? Because Malachi says that he will come, Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. Bible prophecy is important. Jesus asked the question, how is it that the prophets say that the Messiah must suffer? And this was a stumbling block for the Jews. They would say, we don't understand that. In fact, many would read Isaiah and they would say, was Isaiah writing about himself or was he writing about another? Remember, this is where Philip preached Christ to the eunuch from Ethiopia because he was reading the portion of scripture dealing with Christ being crucified. And the eunuch says, I don't understand these things, you know, and he got up in the chariot and he preached Christ to him. So the confusion, how could you have a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah? How is that possible? Two advents, two comings. The first he came to die. The second he will come to reign. This is another thing that I think many Christians, they don't even think about this. I'm telling you, you're cheating yourself. If you're not a student of the, of the Bible, if you're not studying the scriptures, you're cheating yourself. Because there are so many Christians that just kind of think, yeah, well, you know, you live your life and then you die and then you go to heaven and that's it. And, oh yeah, and you get a harp on the way. <laughs> you, get a, you get assigned to a cloud. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. Just playing a harp on a cloud? You know, the Bible says that 
Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may be. Didn't he say that? Right before his crucifixion. So he's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to the representation of the church, the bride of Christ. Many Christians, they don't think through this. They say, oh, that, that's neat. They never stop to say, well, when do we go to that prepared place? I suggest, according to the scriptures, that we go to that prepared place during the tribulation, where the church will be taken to heaven at the beginning of the tribulation or before the tribulation begins, and that's where we will be in that prepared place, protected by the Lord, because the Bible makes it clear that once we're with Jesus, we'll always be with Jesus. We'll never not be with Jesus once we're with Jesus. Well, tongue-tied on Jesus. We'll never not be with Jesus. Jesus will come back at his second coming. I believe that we're coming back with Jesus at his second coming because we'll never not be with Jesus. And as he comes on the white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords, we will be coming with him. He will wrap things up, the battle of Armageddon. He will destroy them with the sword that protrudes out of his mouth. I think it speaks of the word of God. It will be a spoken thing and it will be done. And then what happens? Then he sets up his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. You say, where do you get that? The book of Revelation, the book of Isaiah for a thousand years. Guys, that's when you have the wolf and the lamb lying down together. That's when you have the toddlers putting their hands in the viper's den and they're not harmed by it. That's when you get the longevity of life. When a person dies at 100 years old, it, you know, it will be like, oh, they were so young in that tragic, you know. That's when you get that. Why do you get that? Because that is a promise that was given to Israel. It's given to Israel. And so that will be fulfilled. And then after the thousand-year reign, remember, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. After the thousand-year reign, Satan will be released for a time, for a short time. And apparently, there will be many who have been deceived, even when Jesus was reigning upon the throne. So all the sociology and psychology garbage that says you're victims of your surrounding you're going to be in a perfect surrounding as Jesus, the king, reigning upon the earth. And people are still going to choose evil over him. Then what happens? Well, then the enemy is finally cast into the abyss. He is no more. Then what happens? The heaven and the earth is destroyed. Hmm. Then what happens? The new Jerusalem coming down out of the sky a new heaven and a new earth. The new earth is different than this earth because there is no sea in it. There's no water in it. There's no oceans or, or that type of thing. Guys, there's so much we have to look forward to. If you're thinking of retirement as a Christian, get over it because we got tasks to do during the millennium and how we live our lives now and how seriously we take our walk with Jesus today will have an effect upon our role in the thousand-year reign of Christ. He says, listen, Elijah is coming. But then he said, but Elijah has come. What? Yeah, he came. And they, they did to him as they wished. What do you mean, John the Baptist? So you say, Jesus was saying that Elijah, or that John the Baptist was Elijah? 
No, that's not what he was saying. This is what was said to Elijah's father. You guys know it. Remember, he went in, he's burning incense. Remember what the incense represent? The prayers of the people. As the smoke of the incense is ascending, the angel comes and he says, your prayers have been heard. You're going to have, your wife's going to have a son. And he's like, oh, you know, I read about this. You know, all, all the patriarchs, I read about this, but, you know, she's barren. She's old. We're old. You know, come on, you know. And remember, he could not speak until John was born. But this is what was said to him. He, speaking of his son, will go, will also go before him, Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. To, and then here's a quote from Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The Lord is faithful. The Lord doesn't want any to perish. He sent John the Baptist at his first coming. He's sending Elijah at his second coming. He gives people opportunity. Repent, repent, repent. And I'll tell you, you're here today, so you have opportunity. Are you truly his? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you trusting in him? Is he your Lord? You say, Dan, you ask that every week. You know, I think I'm going to ask this every week until I'm gone or until we're all in heaven, you know. Because, guys, I believe that we are that close. If I believe like some of the other churches, if I bought into a kingdom now theology, because you might say, you know, Dan, you're so uptight about all this stuff. We went to, and I can name some churches, we went to this church and that church, and they don't even talk about these things. And you need to, you need to wonder why they're not talking about these things. Because their eschatology is a kingdom now eschatology. The church, we're going to become all that we're supposed to be. We're going to be in places of politics and music and the arts and power, and we're going to usher in the kingdom of Christ. The church is going to do it. Man, I'll tell you what. If that's what we're supposed to do, we're going in reverse. Because we're watching apostasy happen all around us. We're watching people who claim to be professing Christian. We're watching pastors who claim to preach the gospel. And now they're preaching that he doesn't exist at all. So we're not going in the right direction if that's our role. But the Bible says in the last days, many will depart from the faith. And that's what we're seeing. Things aren't going to get better until Jesus comes. And then everything's going to go according to his plan. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, you need to do so. You need to trust him. If you've placed your faith in Christ, listen, this is between you and the Lord. But there needs to be fruit. If you never want to read his word, if you never want to pray, if it's a drag to come to church, and I don't care where you go to church, really. I, I really, I, I'm so beyond building a church. I've been beyond it for probably a decade or longer, you know. I, because the Lord never called me to build a church. He builds his church. He gives to the church pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry so in one sense who's supposed to be building the church well he's building the church but he's going to build it through you and me 
But it's not a pastor's job to build a church. But if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you need to. If you have, you need to look for fruit in your life. And if it's not there, then ask the Lord. Guys, you know what? We're beyond. It's like, you know, one minute till noon. Not really, like here, but we're not, I'm not that late. But, um, but we're, I believe we are that close. And I'm telling you that we need to stop asking the question, what can I do? What can I get away with and still be saved? I mean, that, that's the wrong question. It really is. We need to stop asking the question, you know, well, um, uh, once saved, always saved, right? Because behind the question is, I know someone, they're completely flaky when it comes to their walk with Jesus, but they said that sinner's prayer when they were seven years old, and so I'm hoping we need to get beyond that. And we need to say to that person now and say, honey, do you know the Lord? Johnny, you need to place your faith in Christ. Johnny, you... You're desiring the things of the world, and this world is passing away. The system of this world is passing away. So would you stand with me, please? Father, we pray that you would put within us, Lord, a passion for the things that you have a passion for, that you would put within our heart a sense of urgency, Lord, that we'd be a people. I, my prayer is that everyone that attends this church is born again, spirit-filled, serving you, Lord. And if you were to come right now in this moment, that this building would be completely empty. I would wish that. I would hope for that. But I don't believe that. Pray, Father, that you would woo us by your spirit. Pray, Father, that we'd hear your call. Pray that we'd be obedient. Pray, Lord, that if we have a day or a month or a year or 12, that we'd be faithfully serving you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that as each day goes by, that our grip on the things of this earth would be loose, that we'd be free to serve you, Jesus. Would you give us strength, Lord, as the days get darker? Pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who suffer real-life persecution. We pray for them. Give them strength, Lord, and we pray that you'd give us strength if we had to face the same thing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.